You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Probably some of the most comforting words that I hear from anybody, especially if I know somebody that's sincere and genuine about what they're saying, is when somebody says to me, I'm praying for you. I've had numbers of people tell me, Pastor, we, we pray for you almost every day. I've heard that from many different people. That means so much. But how many of you have ever told anybody those words, I'm praying for you, or I'll be praying for you? Ever utter those words? Um, let me say this personally. I've said it hundreds of times. And sometimes my best of intentions are most easily forgotten. Do you know what I'm talking about? I'll be praying for you. And then come to find out next week they had their surgery or they went through what it was they were going through. And you're like, oh man, I forgot to pray for them. That's so easily done. Your best, um, your best action is when you say, I'll be praying for you, is to either stop right then and there and pray with them. Or as you're walking away, and this is usually me, as I'm walking away, I'm saying a prayer. I get down, sit down in my office. I sometimes even sit down up here and I just be praying, God, you know, and be with that person. That means a lot. And I, I really appreciate the prayer or the song that was sung about prayer and, and uh, what prayer does mean for the Christian life. Let's get back into our Bibles. We're in Matthew 27. If we could somehow sit back in a huge grandstand and be able to look at the beginning of time and the end of time where God creates, listen, the earth, and the last moment we live on earth, and God takes us out. Guys, if we watched every, if we could just sit here and just span it like this and look back and forth at all of time and all that took place on earth, what we'll read about today is the darkest hour, it's the darkest spot in that whole span of time that we will see on that timeline. It's, it's the darkest, I would say, bittersweet, but in many ways some of the most bitter moments on that entire scale. And I know a lot of dark moments in history. I, I've heard of world wars. I've heard of millions of people that have been slain. I've heard of some really, really atrocious things that have happened and really dark moments in history. They even have what they call the dark ages, and those certainly were dark ages, definitely in that spot in history. But honestly, what we're going to read about today, of all the times you could look at it, bring it down to one dark moment. It's the darkest hour that we're going to read about here today. Jesus has gone to the cross. Uh, they've crucified him. The nails, the spikes are in his hands and his feet. His, the bleeding is uh, profuse. He's bleeding to death at this point, although he doesn't bleed to death. You know that, right? Um, breathing is excruciating. There's no real way for us to describe what he was going through. And then we, last Sunday, we talked about what does the word vicarious means. Was the vicarious suffering of Jesus Christ is when he stepped in and took all the suffering that I deserved, and they also took all the mockery that was coming, uh, would have come to you and me. 
uh, what we deserve because of our sin. And yet Jesus took all of that and took it upon himself and suffered in our place. That's called vicariously suffering or, or taking the place for somebody else. And so they're mocking him. They're saying, if you're really the son of God, you know, come down from the cross and save yourself. And, and they're saying things that, you know, like in total mockery and taunting him. Why don't you come down if you're really the, the son of God? And how many of us know and understand, had he come down from the cross, guys, we wouldn't have any hope in heaven. And if Jesus would have came down from uh, Calvary and would have never been the sacrifice for the sin of the world, then you and I would still be carrying our own sin and be deserving and condemned to what we call a devil's hell where we would have suffered with him forever and ever. So Jesus knew, I'm not coming down. You can't taunt me off the cross. You can't mock me off the cross. I'm here for you and because of the sins of the world. And so Christ is crucified and the mockery that came to him was Unless you experienced it and Christ is the only one that went through it the way he, he did, there's no way to fully understand all that he went through for us. So now we're going to take it down a few steps further. The hour gets really dark and you're going to see it literally take place figuratively as well. We're in verse 45. Matthew 27, 45. And we'll read down to 53. Everybody there? Verse 45, notice what happens from there. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there when they heard that said, this man calleth for Elias. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar, put it on a reed and gave him to drink, uh, a sour drink. The rest said, let be, let us see whether Elias will come to save him. Uh, Jesus, when he had cried, notice here, again with a loud voice, key word here, I, it's worthy of underlining, highlighting, yielded up the ghost that makes him different than anybody else on the face of the earth verse 51 and behold the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom and the earth did quake God's words by the way no small tremor I have an idea I've got an idea people were shaking as they were standing there and the Bible even says the uh, the rocks rent or were split verse 52 and the graves when's the last time you've read this and the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints which slept arose first half of that verse is not all that uncommon for earthquakes to take place and and in some cases old things under the ground are split open and in some cases graves have been split open in some cases around the world uh but we have never seen what they said in the second part of that verse. The people that were in the grave, some of them got up and began to walk around and presented themselves to the people in town. Whoa. Verse 53. And came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. I mean, would you love to have seen their faces? 
Yeah, gives new meaning to, uh, honey, I'm home. <laughs> uh, you're dead. How is, this, how is this possible? And guys, you have to understand, everything we just read was miraculous. Everything we just read was unlike any other time on the face of the earth. Just keep that in mind and let me have a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, for letting us be in the Bible here today, God, and showing us what we just saw. I'm asking God's Holy Spirit to talk to every heart. God, help us right now to set aside um, thoughts that are distracting us, Lord. Please, God, help us to see what really is here. Our human bodies and minds have a way of missing the big point sometimes. So help. God, help us to see what you're showing us. And then to apply it to our own lives, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Boy, a lot of years ago, I think I was still the assist, uh, an assistant pastor at the church. And um, I was given the, 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 the duty of putting on VBS. And when I was asked to put on VBS, I took it very seriously. I, I wanted to make it as big as I could, and I wanted to do as much as I possibly could. And... Um, to try to make it as big as we could. And, and um, so we were going to run the buses and pick up kids. And it was a daytime uh, VBS. Most of the time we have to do the evenings now because of the workers and so forth. But it was daytime. And I remember I had gone around and had gone to different stores. And I remember asking them, could you, would you possibly be willing uh, to make a donation to our VBS program this year? Because our church wants to have the world's largest Banana split in the whole wide world for our VBS. And just, I just thought, that's a great promotion. Let's just promote it that way. World's largest banana split. You say, how are you going to do that? I wasn't exactly sure yet, but it was going to be the world's largest banana split. And we went out and, and told all the kids on the bus routes. We passed it around to all the town. Craig went with me as we went to these places getting the, the bananas and the chocolate syrup and the uh, buckets of ice cream and cherries and... Uh, all that kind of stuff. And I remember how we're going to do this, how we're going to do this. And I said, Charlie Branson, who's in heaven right now, um, Charlie, would you be willing to make us as long a trough as you possibly can? Uh, buy the boards as long as they sell them in the stores. And uh, I think Charlie ended up getting like uh, some one by 12s, I think they might have been, one by six or eights, and 12 feet long. They were, they were like it was like from, as long as from here to, the, to this little podium over here, long. And you take two of those boards and you make a V like that, and it's, and it's a trough. And he put them on some kind of legs underneath there. And the idea was that after the last day of VBS, um, you know, everybody, everybody got to have a part in the world's largest banana split. I didn't know how he was going to do it. It's a really long trough, and there's two sides to it, and it seemed like we had a thousand kids there that day, that last Friday. It wasn't a thousand, but it sure looked like it. I didn't know what else to do except, guys, come on out and, and line, up, <laughs> line up, and we gave them plastic spoons, and they went down that row, man, and just all, now, the health department wasn't there, but, uh, <laughs> and, and we did not call the health department, didn't want them to know about this, but those kids 
their heads were bobbing each other, man, and they're pushing and shoving each other, trying to get the cherries and all that whipped cream and stuff on the top. And by the time they, I said, you make your way down to the end of the line, eat what you can, but when you get to the end of the line, get out of the way. And all these kids went through that world's largest banana split. They were a mess, uh, but it was awesome. And I, and I love that. And, uh, you know, you say, why'd you do that? Because I don't remember the number, but uh, several kids got saved that week, uh, became a part of our Sunday school program. I don't remember if some of the parents got involved as a result of that or not. But if you want to do something and make it big, you want it to be great. If the event, listen, if the event you're wanting to do is big to you, then make it big. Does that make sense? If it's really, really important, if, for instance, VBS, if you really, your goal is to get the Word of God into the hearts of the little kids, and if the goal is to uh, maybe see some of them truly trust Christ as Savior, if the goal is to one day walk up in heaven one day and have somebody come running up to you and say, you know, Phil Spencer, or call your name out and say, thank you so much that you had VBS that week and, and I got saved in my life was changed. Yvette, and Yvette just met one of our uh, bus kids from years and years ago. Do you remember who that was? Say her name. Poppinga? Was that one of the Poppinga kids? Just thanking. She came up to Yvette and she says, oh, do you remember me? You guys, you, your church changed my life. I mean, that's just so encouraging to hear an, an ex-bus kid, somebody that you know, you really wanted to have an impact in their life. So how do you have an impact in somebody's life? Number one, you got to understand how important what you're doing really is. And if what you're doing, hey, if what you're doing is really important, then make it really big. Go all out and, and do everything you can to focus on that one point in, in what you're doing and make sure that it's a great big deal. I love watching the Olympics. I really do. Every four years, Obviously, they come up, and I love it when an American wins gold. I love it when they're up on the stand and the national anthems are being played. I love it when the American flag is up at the top. I love every now and then seeing those uh, uh, Olympians, sometimes tears coming down their face, and they're singing, you know, the national anthem. I love that. But if you remember, at the beginning of the Olympics, they have their opening ceremonies, and, and man, they go all out. They spare no expense. I... I I mean, it looks like they spent millions of dollars to have all of the display they have and all the decorations and, and then, you know, the lighting of the big cauldron up at the top. They come running in with the torch that's made its way down many, many, many miles to get there. And the final person usually is like uh, some famous golden uh, Olympian, won gold medal. And I remember one time to light the big cauldron at the top that's supposed to stay lit all week long, one of the guys was a famous archer drew his arrow uh, with a flaming arrow and shot it over, just skimming the top of the cauldron and lit the cauldron. One guy was running in air across around this big nest, lighting the big cauldron. It, I mean, it was just a blowout. And every time that country is trying to get you to understand that the Olympics is just once every four years, and it's worldwide, and we, we're just trying to promote this in a proper way, they spare no expense. They go all out to, to focus on that event. I personally believe what we witnessed in those few short verses we just read here 
we're talking about the Son of God. Think about this. The Son of God left heaven and came to this earth and died. Do you get that? That is earth-shaking. The Son of God came to this earth and died for you and me so that I wouldn't have any sins anymore. That my penalty for sin would be taken away. He would suffer the condemnation that I would have had to suffer. The darkest hour in history, the Son of God dying for you and me. So it was accompanied by what, if you, if you look at it, I think there's like six different miraculous events that surround it. Uh, it. It wasn't a guy shooting arrows and lighting a cauldron. You know, it wasn't spectacular things like that. But God does show us things that surrounded that. The most important event in all of history, the death and eventually the burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, this one event is surrounded by some, not some of the most, uh, let me back off of that, is surrounded by the most remarkable events in all of history. And you'll see those as we walk through here today. Notice how it's not a promotional thing that God did. It's just God knew how critical and how huge that his own son would die. And notice all the events that surround that, if you will. Number one, if you walk with me now, please stay with me. First of all, let's look at the six things that took place on, in this moment. Number one, God casts darkness over all the land for three hours. Now, drop down into verse 45. In verse 45, it says, Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. Six to the ninth, okay? These hours translate over to our um, high noon, 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock. I mean, and that was no natural eclipse of the sun, guys, that lasts three hours. You know that. And I think it's interesting to note, when you think about it, and you go back through the Bible, and you look at the number of times darkness is mentioned, and again, three solid hours of darkness, most every time darkness just drops in on a place, it speaks about the judgment of God. Now, remember that. Uh, it's a part of God's judgment. For instance, uh, you remember what the ninth plague was for Egypt when God was trying to use Moses to get Pharaoh to let God's people go out of Egypt. And the ninth plague was God brought darkness upon the land. Let me read it to you. Exodus 10, 21 says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thine hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt. Listen to this even darkness which may be felt. Well, what was that? It was one of the judgments of God that was being placed upon the, you know, the, the nation of Egypt, and it was the judging hand of God. Darkness that could be felt. Even the prophet Isaiah, you get into chapter 5, he begins to describe how the enemy of, of Israel, the Assyrians, were being used by God to punish Israel for their sins. And Isaiah said that the land would be full of darkness, and sorrow, darkness, because it was the judgment of God. And then Peter, over in the New Testament, describes the punishment of disobedient angels. Listen to how he describes their judgment. They were delivered into chains of darkness to be reserved unto, who knows the last word there, to be reserved unto judgment 
So chains of darkness is where those disobedient angels were cast. It's a part of the judgment of God. And then even those people on earth who were lost and, and uh, have never trusted Christ as their Savior, the Bible says they're cast into outer darkness. Darkness is a, it's a symbol, it's a type of the judgment of God. And, and if you remember when Jesus was brought into the world, uh, you know, the shepherds were out in the fields watching their flocks by... Can you say it out loud with me? They were watching over their flocks by night. Well, what happened when uh, the announcement of Christ came? The angel shows up and brightness shone all round about them. And the darkness turned into light when Jesus came here. By the way, that's why Jesus did come. Jesus wanted to come into our darkness so that we could have the light of heaven with us. That was his purpose. But not here at Calvary. At Calvary, at the death of Christ, just the opposite happened. Light, it was midday, it was 12 o'clock high. The brightest it usually does get in the daytime, um, midday light was turned into darkness. And it was that judgment of God beginning to fall on the sin of mankind, which was now on Jesus Christ. Darkness extinguishes the light as the judgment of God falls upon our sins that were on His Son that was on Calvary. And judgment, if you can put it that way, darkness was over the entire land at that time. This was what I would call uh, once in all eternity kind of darkness. It was a miracle, if you would. I mean, nothing has ever happened of that sort for that length of time at midday for three solid hours. It was miraculous. It was just one of the events that surrounded the most important event in all history, the death of Christ. Number two, notice how else God accompanied um, the death of Christ. Number two, you say, well, this doesn't sound like a miracle. Well, it's something that was never, ever done at any other time in history, nor will it ever be done ever again when God the Father forsakes His Son. Look in verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Psalm 22 Verse 1 says the same thing, the prophecy about this, and here is the fulfillment of that. I, um, I thought of my, my children. I, I know that sometimes we read about these things so many times, guys, at uh, Christmas time, Easter time, um, and we've taught the lessons, and you've heard so many messages about these kind of things. So sad, they kind of get, um, we kind of yawn our way through it. It's not like earth-shaking like God intended it to be. But I don't know if you understand what was just said here. There's not another time in history when God the Father and God the Son were ever separated in any way, shape, or fashion. They were, they were tight. They're, they were inseparable. And yet at this point, God the Father turns His face away from His own Son. I thought of times when, and, and I, it's been a while, but I mentioned that one of my daughters got away from the Lord, and she said, Dad, use this whenever you need to. If it'll be a help to somebody, please use that. She got away from the Lord, was not walking with God, uh, lived in another state, and my heart was fearful every night for her. And, um, and I know she wouldn't want to talk to us. She 
We would talk on the phone not very often because I know in her heart she just felt like we really didn't want anything to do with her while she was like that. And I have to tell you, as a dad, and I know her mom, as a mother, wanted everything to do with her. Everything. And I I hated what was going on in her life at that time, but I loved her to the very core of who she was and still do today. By the way, she's uh, living for the Lord today, and I thank God for that. I cannot imagine uh, telling one of my daughters that I don't want anything else to do with you anymore. I'm going to turn my back on you because of how you're living and because of the lifestyle that you have and the sin that's in your life. But do you understand that's what was going on here? The heavenly father saw his son, and Habakkuk says in chapter 1 that, God, you are of purer eyes than to behold iniquity. In other words, it's not as if God never sees the sin that we commit, but God will not gaze into and look into a sinful life and keep his eyes on that sin. And when Jesus Christ was hanging on Calvary, Guys, and the sin of the world was being poured upon him. And he was drinking that ugly, dark, bitter cup of our sin. The Heavenly Father turned his back on his own son for the only time in history ever that this had ever happened. And thank God it's the only time it'll ever happen again. Unbelievable, I'll even use the word, miraculous events took place here at the death of Jesus Christ. Number three. This is an important uh, statement. What was was another great event at the death of Christ? Well, the power of Jesus demonstrated in controlling his own death. Think about that. The power of Jesus demonstrated by him controlling his own death. Look back down into verse 50, if you will. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, again, You ought to circle the word yielded, underline it, highlight it. Yielded up the ghost. Now, if you can look up here. Nobody on earth besides Jesus has ever done that. Nobody. Uh, We cannot determine to just let go of my spirit and to yield that to the Lord and allow my spirit to be separated from our our bodies. You you say, well, preacher, uh, you know like I do, others have taken their life and have ended their life, and in in that moment they determined when it would happen. I understand that. But even at that moment, they did not yield up their spirit. Jesus yielded his spirit. God is the one who is in control of life and death, our spirits being taken up to heaven. Hold your place here in Matthew, if you will, and go over to the book of John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Everybody there? So drop down to verses 17 and 18. If you're in John 10, look in verses 17 and 18. Listen to these words of Jesus. Therefore doth my Father love me because, notice the wording, I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. 
This commandment have I received of my Father. So flip the page back over, if you will. So if I could just make a couple of comments here. Nobody took the life of Jesus. Nobody killed him. You say, wait a minute. The Roman soldiers and everybody around them killed him, right? No, no, nobody killed him. He gave his life for us. I mean, he was brought right up uh, within an inch of his life for sure. And man did everything they could to make sure that he was punished and that he, he felt some of the most horrible pain that could be felt on earth right up to the point of death for sure. Yes, they did that, but nobody took his life. Jesus wasn't the victim of some horrible tragedy. Jesus never lost control of himself or of life's circumstances. Everything went exactly as planned. You need to understand that. And when most men would have lived for days on the cross, like I've described that before, uh, most men that were crucified in the manner that they were crucified, they orchestrated it, the Romans did, so that you would live for a long time, many of them for days would live on the cross, suffering a slow, agonizing, bleeding death. And, uh, and as I've said, the vultures many times would land on the cross and, and would eat the flesh off of a man that's still alive. Uh, and they would live for days, and yet Jesus did not live for days. And, and when um, they were told that Jesus had already died, they marveled at that, that he was so soon dead. They couldn't believe it because, you know, they would go up and break the legs of the other uh, men that were hanging there, the other criminals, so they could no longer support their weight and be able to take a breath. But when they got to Jesus, he was already dead. He had already given up the ghost. He had already yielded his spirit back to his father, and uh, life had left this physical body of Christ. You understand nobody else does that? And, and yes, it's true. People can, uh, people can, and they have again, they've taken their own life, but they couldn't just yield up their spirit. Miraculously, only Jesus could do that, and that only happened there on that day. Another one of those amazing, miraculous events that surrounded this moment in history. Number four. Boy, this is a big one as well. I mean, they all are. No other time in history have these things ever happened quite like this ever before. But number four, the veil covering the holy of holies in the temple is torn from top to bottom. Look in verse 51 with me. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain or in half from the top. That's important to understand as well. God's wording is very specific. From the top all the way down to the bottom and the earth did quake and the rocks rent. Now let's just stop there with the veil of the temple was torn in half. And it was torn in half from the top to the bottom. Now, somebody could say, yeah, but you know, preacher, how people can be at a time like this. Uh, you could have gotten a group of guys uh, to go up and, you know, get a, you know, three or four of them on this side of the curtain, three or four on this side. They could have just ripped it right in half. No, they could not have done that. Uh, <clears throat> The Holy of Holies, if you remember what the Holy of Holies is, and this is the place where this happened, if you would, we're not talking about the tabernacle now, we're now talking about the temple, but was built much in the same fashion. There were a few differences. So when you would walk into the, the outer court, and then you'd walk into what was called the holy place, 
where pieces of furniture were, and there was one curtain separating the holy place from a place called the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies, there was only one piece of furniture in there, if you wanted to call it that. It was called the Ark of the Covenant. And there was the Ten Commandments. Uh, On top of the Ark of the Covenant was what was called the Mercy Seat. On top of the mercy seat was the cherubims that hovered over the top of that, representing the holiness of a holy God, protecting it from just anybody common, and only a holy God could come down between that spot and sit on a place called the mercy seat. One time a year, the high priest would walk in with blood for himself and his sins and would sprinkle it upon uh, that, that, uh, that ark. And then he would go back out because now his sins had been atoned for, get uh, uh, more blood, come back in and sprinkle that blood on the ark, representing the sins of all of Israel. So that Israel could now, for one more year, their sins would be covered and paid for and, so to speak, be in right fellowship with the Heavenly Father because of the blood that was sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant. And yet you couldn't just walk into that Ark of the Covenant. There's this huge curtain that was there. They say the curtain was as thick as the, uh, the, the breadth of a man's hand. And in the temple, they say it was 60 feet high. Look in the commentaries. That was an amazing figure that I, I had read. You know how high 60 feet is? How high would this be, guys? 25, 30, 40 feet high? 60 feet Am I, do you, do you know, Juan, how high that is? Okay, 60 feet, much higher than this. From the top to the bottom, that curtain was ripped in half. And no 10 men could get on either side of that curtain and rip it in half. How are you going to get up and start at the top anyway? Because it started at the top and went to the bottom. Well, how do you know that? Well, you got to remember this is during the Passover time. And Thousands of people were coming in and worshiping and, and priests were ministering in the temple. And I'm sure some guy came running out saying, <clears throat> I mean, probably scared to death because he was exposed to the Ark of the Covenant. And, and now the very presence of God, I've been exposed to that. I'm sure I'm going to die. And, and they said, what are you talking about? Yeah, it ripped from the top all the way to the bottom. Well, what that did was it allowed common man like you and me now to be able to have the same access that the high priest used to only have. And now a common man like you and I can go into the very presence of God. As the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews, uh, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I can walk straight into the presence of God today. I don't have to have, I don't have to go to, uh, uh, please get this, I don't have to go to some man and say to some man, which could be a priest or whatever he might be, would you please go to God for me and ask him uh, to do this for me? I no longer have to do that. Because when Jesus died on Calvary and the sin of the world was then paid for, you understand there doesn't need to be some man walk back into some place and offer the blood of some animal. Because the Lamb of God, His blood has now been shed for you and me. And now we no longer have to go to some earthly place to go into the presence of God. Every Christian that knows Christ as Savior has equal access to the throne of God. I don't have to go to some priest. I go straight to God. And that happened on that same day. Unbelievable things that happened that day. Number five, nature begins to quiver. That's the way I put it. In verse 51, 
Again, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. They were split right in half. Uh, Briefly here, God is, I mean, if you could have been there during that time and felt the earth shaking and the rocks crumbling and so forth, and you could have felt the power of God like nothing else. I've been out in thunderstorms. You all have been out in a thunderstorm before and trying to get back from where you were, and the lightning begins to flash, and the thunder begins to rumble off in the distance, and then a really bright flash of light, and you know it's really close, and then it's light, and then it's boom, and you can feel that power and that thunder, and it rumbles the earth, and my feet move even faster. (laughs) trying to get back to the car. I mean, it's, it's honestly fearful just to feel that mighty power of God. And I've got an idea. These people begin to feel and the shaking and understanding something really big has got to be taking place around here at this time. And I believe it was just a foretaste that one day every knee is going to bow to the great and mighty power of this king that is hanging on the cross for them. Just a little symbol of what was to come. What another miracle. And then number six. This is the one I've kind of been waiting to get to. An untimely resurrection of the saints took place. Verses 52 and 53. Would you look there with me again? And the graves were opened. And like I said at the beginning of the message, that's not so uncommon. The tombs probably shook, you know, the earthquake and all that. But then many bodies of the saints which slept, arose, and notice verse 53, and came out of the graves, and this was after his resurrection, and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. I have a book in my office, or I had a book in my office, that talks about these wild, unbelievable events, like the one we just read about. And he really takes a lot of time to say, hey, did you notice during that time the earthquake took place and the graves were opened? And Jesus still on the cross at this time. He still had to go to the grave and be in the grave uh, tomb three days and three nights. And then he was resurrected. But did you notice the wording here? The tombs were opened up and the bodies came out of the graves after his resurrection. I don't understand it all. Kind of makes it sound like the tombs were opened up and the bodies were there. Exposed to our vision. And when Jesus came out of the grave and resurrection took place... Then those bodies also came up out of the grave and presented themselves throughout the city. How would you have felt to have seen somebody you watched them have the funeral for last week or last year come walking into town saying, hey, I'm back. (laughs) And I don't think it was just people buried recently. I think it could have been Old Testament saints, which... All, most of these would have been Old Testament saints anyway. Some of them could have risen from the grave and went in throughout the town and presented themselves. Some people believe these people just came up and had glorified bodies and lived and went right on up to heaven. Um, others believe, like I believe they, they had to die again. I believe their physical bodies died again and then they were gonna, they're going to be caught up in the rapture. Um, if you've got another view, I'd like to see it scripturally. But you cannot deny the things that happened around the death of Jesus Christ, you can't deny that these are unbelievable things that happened. You would almost think God wanted us to say, wow, that was a pretty big thing taking place on that day. 
six different things that would happen in amazing fashion, all of them miraculous in their form and in what had happened, never seeing, you know, especially like this, all in one day happening at one point, and all of them, all of those six things pointing to one event, and that is the death of Jesus Christ, all of them. And if you don't understand the importance of how uh, the death of Jesus Christ was so critically important for you and me here today that if Jesus had not died for my sins, I would still be guilty and on my way to hell. And if you don't understand the importance of what God allowed to happen on that day, then all these other things to you are yawners. Uh, you, You just fall asleep while you're reading about them all over again. But they all point to one event, and that is the death of Jesus Christ. And God allowed that to happen for you and me, to get us to wake up and understand that what God did for us was a really big deal. It's not something that happens every four years or just at some vacation Bible school where we wanted to have a great Bible school. This happened one time, once and for all, that paid for the sins of the entire world once and for all was a big deal to God. And God demonstrated how big it was by all the things that surrounded it so that our human eyes could be captivated by that and realize something huge is going on here. Look at verse 54. Verse 54, do you see that? Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake... And those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. Now, let me look back up here. I want to finish with this. It had its impact on a lost man. Who knows, maybe the soldier got saved. Maybe that guy actually said, you know what, that is the Son of God, and I believe in him. Maybe, Maybe it changed that guy's life. But what does it do to you? When I stop and read about how huge event that really was and all those things God allowed to happen and all those six things like like they had a long arm with a finger on it pointing to the death of Jesus Christ so that the world would look and see and understand just how big this really was for us, I want to ask you a question. In your life, and I, I have an idea, most of us are saved here this morning, but in your life, the things that you do for God, how big are they to you? How important are the things that you do for God to you? Uh, I understand, and I I think I've got an idea how important they are to you. Friend, if you just roll out of bed, let's say you teach a Sunday school class. If you just roll out of bed on Sunday morning and the first time you touch your lesson, when you run to the couch and sit down and say, man, I better skim over this lesson. I'm going to teach some kids about Jesus Christ. I'm going to teach some kids about the death of Jesus Christ. I'm going to teach some children today how to live for the Lord. I may be teaching somebody whose mom and daddy don't come to church, and, and, uh, and, and they may be able to go home and be able to have a tremendous impact in the life of their mom and daddy. So I got to, real quick, I got to skim over this. Is there anything about your life that points and says what I'm doing today is really, really important? Or is it just like any other event? I come to church just like I go anywhere else in life. When we really come to church to worship the one and only God, it ought to be the most important place you go to in life. 
Do you, do you prepare for it at all? Do you have your heart prepared? Do you have anything in life that proves that to you this is really, really important and it's really, really a big deal? When, uh, and, and Judy, thanks for the song, when people sing songs or when you play the instruments or when the choir has sung or when you pick a songbook out here to sing a song or when you do whatever you do for God. Is it just like anything else that you do? Or do you prepare in your heart and do everything you can to make sure that I understand right now, at this moment, the thing that I'm doing for God is the most important thing that can be being done in life at this moment. And I want to prepare for it in a proper way. When you come to church, do you spend any time at all when you come to the house of God to worship God Almighty like no other place on earth, do you spend any time at all praying and saying, God, let my heart be prepared and ready. God, let me find something in the Word of God today that'll make sure that maybe I can glean a little bit more from the service and from God. God, if there's things in my life that would prevent me from getting what you have for me at church, God, help it to get right. And I mean, do you do anything that shows that what you're doing for God is really important? And is there anything that points from your life to say what I'm doing for God, even my parenting, and, and the way I, 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 I'm a, a wife or a husband or a, or a, or a parent or a, a child, and those things that God gives me to do, or when I go to work, and I, I know I'm not going to work to clock in for the boss, I'm working for God. Have you done anything to prepare and show others that what you're doing for God is really important or you're just like anybody else that comes to work. You're just like anybody else that shows up for church. You're like all the other teachers that yawn their way through a lesson and have never shown me how important it really is to you. <clears throat> you could be standing up and teaching a group of people at work as far as coming to church and showing me your heart. Showing me how to live a life as a child so that my mom and daddy's life could really be changed and that somebody's heart could really be turned around for God. When God was showing us the darkest hour in Jesus' life, the judgment of God falling on him, and really what represents my sin being suffered and paid for, six huge miraculous events pointed to the importance of it. Is there anything that you do that proves that what you're doing for God is really important, or do your actions just prove I'm just like anybody else on earth. I'm, I, I put my time in. I came to church. It's no big deal. I say, preacher, I don't say no big deal. I know we don't say those words. But our actions sometimes prove that. It was a very convicting passage of Scripture for me. And I don't know if it hits you at all like it has hit me. And I, all I could do today is share with you how the Lord spoke to my heart. And I would just simply ask this morning, number one, do you know that Jesus as your Savior? And if you do, how important is he to you? Look at your life. Please listen. Look at your life. Does your life point to Christ being critical in my life? The way I live my life, does it point to how great this really is to me? Or does my life just reflect a life like anybody else in the world? No big deal if somebody was to read your life. No big deal. Yeah, I go to church. Don't make too much of it, you know. God help us not to be that way.
God help us to live our lives so that when people see what we do, it points to one focal point in your life, and that is Jesus Christ. When I go to church, it's the most important thing I'll be doing that day. When I read the Word of God, I want to be focused. I I don't want nothing to be able to distract me. Whatever it is I'm going to do for God, prepare for it, plan for it, make it the biggest thing that you're doing at that moment for God. It's just a challenge. I, I believe it's a challenge even from God's Word. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.